Charities across the country are now helping federal employees with groceries and food here in D.C. today. Furloughed workers and contractors lined up for a free meal from humanitarian and chef Jose Andres as the Department of Agriculture revealed it may not have funding for food stamps if the shutdown continues past February. The president, who says he's been tougher on Russia than any president ever, just won a narrow vote in the Senate to ease sanctions on companies tied to a Russian billionaire with close connections to the Kremlin. This president has said and done so many insensitive and bigoted and racist things. If you support him, people like me want to understand why you ignored so much. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. It can get tiring to follow everything that's going on in the unpleasant mind of Donald Trump day after day. It's easy to feel like it's just one great sea of shit washing over us. One day it is a nasty tweet that is inflammatory, that insults people, that is utterly unpresidential. And the next day it is floating the idea of a national emergency in response to the shutdown. Well, folks, one of the pieces of really hard intellectual work that we have to do in order to keep clear about what the situation is, is to distinguish between those kinds of things. There are all of the nasty tweets and all of the ways in which Donald Trump is a deeply unpleasant human being and a deeply irresponsible politician. And then there are the things which should make all of our alarm bells go off. The national emergency absolutely is one of them. If you talk to any historian, any political scientist, any scholar who has studied the rise of authoritarian movements, the crises of democracy long before our particular moment, they will tell you that calling national emergencies for spurious reasons is one of the absolutely key tactics which authoritarian leaders employ. That doesn't mean that Donald Trump is going to succeed. We can stand up to him in the streets. We can pressure politicians to do the right thing and stand up for the Constitution rather than sell the soul to him. And we can hope that even courts with a clear conservative majority are going to withstand such a blatant abuse of the separation of powers. That's why today I decided to talk to Charlie Sykes. Charlie Sykes is an analyst at MSNBC. He is the author of How the Right Lost Its Mind. And he is also the editor-in-chief of a new publication called The Bulwark. Decidedly conservative, it is also proudly opposing Donald Trump. Welcome to the podcast, Charlie. Hey, thank you very much. So you've got a new job in the last week or two. You are the editor of something called The Bulwark. What is a bulwark? The Bulwark, I asked you for the definition of the word bulwark or... <laughs> no, what's wait, the publication? Wait. Well, I guess you can give us both. I imagine you chose the word for a reason. Well, actually, it was chosen before I came on board. It was interesting. Some people were saying, you know, it literally means defensive wall. But I think that we also think that you can be a bulwark for certain values without building a medieval structure. 
in a lot of ways, the Bulwark is the digital team from the Weekly Standard. As you know, the Weekly Standard was uh, unceremoniously shut down back in December. And a lot of us felt that the need for this sort of a rational, non-tribal, fact-based, center-right publication was more urgent than ever. So we got the band back together, a lot of the writers and the editors of the Standard, and took a website that, w- that had existed before as an aggregator. And we We basically, um, well, we made it fully operational. That's incredibly exciting. So explain to people who may not have followed that story in so much detail why it is that the Weekly Standard closed down. Because, you know, as somebody who studies populism, it seemed to me a sort of interesting case. I mean, you know, newspapers and magazines shut all of the time. A lot of them are shutting at the moment because of economic constraints. But the Weekly Standard wasn't actually economically unviable, right? It was sort of assassinated by its owner. What happened there? Well, it was. It was assassinated by its owner. Publications like this do not make money. And that's the understanding. That is the business model. And originally, the owners of this, it was a billionaire who lives in Colorado named Phil Anschutz, understood that he was going to subsidize this publication. Now, of course, I'm going to engage in some special pleading here since this is a publication very dear to my heart. But the Weekly Standard was founded back in the 1990s by Bill Kristol, by Fred Barnes and by John Podoritz, all very prominent uh, conservative journalists. And it really emerged over the last several decades as, I think, one of the most influential conservative publications. Now, a lot of people will simply see it as a neoconservative publication. I think it was far broader. It engaged in intelligent, in-depth, thoughtful writing. And when Donald Trump came on the scene, it was one of the handful of conservative publications that simply refused to bow the knee. And under the editor, Steve Hayes, and with Bill Crystal in charge, I have to say they were incredibly courageous in sort of not surrendering their integrity, as so many other folks in the conservative media did. So there's no question that they lost some subscribers to the print edition, but the traffic to the digital side, the online side of the magazine, was rising at a rather healthy rate. And so it came as a rather huge shock when the billionaire who owned it basically changed his mind and decided for whatever reason, because it was, you know, excessively anti-Trump, that he had cooled on it. And even though there were attempts to find other investors or even to sell the magazine, and there were willing buyers, they eventually decided to shut it down so that they could strip its parts, take its subscription list, which is quite valuable, and then transfer it to another publication, the Washington Examiner, which has been more Trump-friendly. So there's a lot going on there, but I think that's the outline of the story. It is a complicated story, but the basic part of it, which is worrying, even from a freedom of press perspective, is essentially that somebody who is very wealthy, who has political reasons not to be too critical of Donald Trump, has decided, let's close this down because actually it is criticizing the president in ways that I'm not comfortable with. I'm not even going to allow them to go off right into the sunset and flourish on their own with a different owner. I would prefer to close it down. And is there sort of some sense that that wasn't done entirely for economic reasons, right? I mean, if this was just saying, hey, you know what, whatever I've been offered by another buyer is worth less than the subscription list. I'm just going to make a purely economic decision to shut the magazine down. That, to me, would be very sad, but it would be a little less concerning. But my understanding is that on purely economic grounds, it would probably have made more sense to sell the magazine. One of the reasons to shut it down instead was in order to deprive the conservative movement of one of its most important venues for criticism of Trump. 
Well, it certainly did deprive the conservative movement of one of the most important venues. And that was why I think there was such a reaction to it. I mean, you saw people like John Podoritz and David Brooks wrote a column in the New York Times, which was very, very uncharacteristically angry about all of this. There was bad faith involved in all of this. That If you simply didn't want to lose money, then, as you point out, you would sell it to somebody or you would offload it. The fact that they basically decided to crush it and then to basically do a bait and switch. All the people who had subscribed to the Weekly Standard then suddenly got this beefed up Washington Examiner did not seem to be in good faith. So there's a lot of things going on here, but that's a roundabout way of explaining how we really worked very hard to resurrect an alternative site, an alternative voice. And I'm very grateful that we were able to pull that off. And Godspeed to you. Look, here's my concern that I'm going to put out there, which is not just the name, the bulwark, which sounds, as you're saying, slightly uncomfortably like a wall. But look, I am on the on the left. I recognize that we need a sane center-right movement in this country because you can only have a democracy when you have an alternation of parties in power. And a lot of people in this country are right of center. And so it is 100% in my interest for all of you to succeed. But is the idea of a bulwark perhaps the wrong metaphor? Because after all, you could make a good case that Donald Trump is certainly a perversion of a conservative movement, an embodiment of all of its worst instincts, that does also seem to be some amount of continuity there, that perhaps some of the things that the conservative movement had become even before Donald Trump are in deep need of reform. So how do you think the Bulwark can reinvent a center-right set of ideas which aren't just critical of Trump, but perhaps also help to renew or to change some of the things that had become rotten in the conservative movement before him? Well, that's the challenge. And I'm under no illusions that that, in fact, is easy. It is, by the way, but going back to the term bulwark, Ronald Reagan actually used this once when he said the true bulwark of our freedom and national independence is to be found in the souls of our people. Our greatest defense lies in the love of liberty and strength of character which I think is very pointed when you think about it in juxtaposition to Donald Trump. You've asked a very difficult question, and I'll, I will admit to you, I wrestle with this all the time. To what extent is Trumpism a logical continuum from where the conservative movement had been going versus whether it, there is a discontinuity? During the campaign, um, when I sat down to write my book, which is you know, How the Right Lost Its Mind, I originally was trying to make the case that, that he was a black swan event, that everything about Donald Trump was a repudiation of, quote unquote, genuine conservatism. But ultimately, that's not sustainable because clearly the dysfunction was a pre-existing condition and that you can certainly trace back many of the things that have morphed into Trumpism into what happened in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, etc. However, that's not to say that there was not an alternative, that there was not a different path that the Republican Party and the conservative movement could have taken and that might take in the future. What shape that is going to be is increasingly difficult to imagine because of this ongoing capitulation of conservatives to this tribal, nativist, authoritarian form of Trumpism. And you sort of wonder whether or not the conservative traditions of, of at least claiming to care about fiscal responsibility and character and the rule of law and constitutionalism, whether or not that will in fact survive Trumpism. Hmm. Yeah, I think that sometimes there's two simplistic positions in this debate. One of them says, 
Trump is a complete aberration. He doesn't stand in a tradition of continuity with anything that came before him. He's this black swan event. And once we've defeated him, we can go back to the way things were and not worry about it. That seems to me very unpersuasive. Yeah. There's also the inverse position, which is basically saying, you know what, Trump really isn't special. It's really no different from what was there before. In the end, Mitt Romney was just the same. And that seems to me equally unconvincing. But perhaps the way to get closer to the truth is to talk about some of the different basic policy areas. So I want to ask you about three of them and push you a little bit on each. So the first is the thing that I care quite a bit about, the basic institutions of democracy. How do you think conservatives can become stalwarts of institutional integrity? And how can we do that while overcoming some of the bad traditions uh, that particularly the Republican Party has been guilty of in the last few years, few decades, including gerrymandering, including some spurious accusations of voter fraud and so on and so forth? Well, that is the task. And look, I think when we're done with Trumpism, I do think there's got to be this sort of a, a bipartisan discussion about you know what we really think of as democratic values. It should not be a right-left split based on things like, for example, access to voting, encouraging people to participate in their democracy, rigging the system through gerrymandering, all of this sort of thing. There's, there's, there's no political tradition that can justify voter suppression or making these bogus claims. The problem is that we live in such a toxic era that nobody wants to move on all this. But you're mm. absolutely right. You know, to claim that you are, in fact, in favor of, you know, defending constitutional norms and then supporting these practices is impossible. But also you ask the question, you know, what can you do? Look, there's going to be a real challenge to things that conservatives claim to care about, uh, our system of checks and balances, the rule of law. And I think that for them to stand up for those institutions, they're going to have to understand, they will have to push back on the cult of personality of Donald Trump. And over the next three months, I think there's going to be a tremendous challenge to those constitutional norms, to the you know Article I powers of Congress, the integrity of the Department of Justice, all of those things. But again, it requires you to break from this tribal loyalty to Donald Trump. Yeah, and I think having a credible conservative voice in that is incredibly important. I mean, I've been struck by the way in which somebody like Lindsey Graham went from talking about those values in a relatively persuasive way to starting to make excuses for the president time after time, saying, no, actually, what he just said is not a violation of his principles and a quite spurious grounds. And now he has gone from being a rubber stamper to an outrider, to somebody who actually advocates for Donald Trump to break the basic rules and norms of our system in that kind of way. I was struck to see him urge in the form of a tweet recently that Donald Trump should go and declare a national emergency. That was just unbelievable to me. It is stunning. However, it's become familiar to some of us. I think it's Jonah Goldberg, uh, writes for National Review, who first coined the phrase that, you know, it's like watching the invasion of the body snatchers, watching one conservative, one elected official after another, one columnist after another, who you know no better, you know, who at one time saw what was happening. But one after another, they fall prey to all of this. And Lindsey Graham is one of them. Look, this national emergency, this rule by fiat is a rejection of almost everything that conservatives claimed 
that they cared about. I mean, after railing about government overreach, railing about Obama ruling with his phone and his pen to suddenly embrace this very constitutionally questionable power grab ruled by fiat is genuinely stunning. But it's kind of the genuinely stunning process that we've seen watching them abandon concern about the deficit, watching them abandon concern about personal character, watching them flip-flop when it comes to questions of the rule of law. All of those things have taken place in such a short period of time. And part of it is, and you know, and this is something that we have thought about with the bulwark, the reward structure right now on the right is so skewed towards supporting Donald Trump that mm. if you break with Trump, there are very few voices that will defend you and you will be excoriated by the Trumpian chorus. The base will attack you. You will be basically driven from office like Bob Corker or Jeff Flake. Somehow we need to create a counterbalance so that principled Republicans who do not want to go along with this will have a place to have a voice, but also will find that they are not alone, that they are not isolated right yeah. now, because otherwise they will all succumb to the kind of temptations that you know have turned Lindsey Graham into this Uriah Heap figure. And the Weekly Standard is an important example of that, because it shows the ways in which conservative intellectuals who remain critical of Trump fear the livelihood, right. that if you actually say the truth, you might suddenly no longer be invited back to write for a place or to be featured, say, on something like Fox News, for sure. And the magazine in which you still retain a majority, in which most of the people still are like-minded, may just be suddenly shut down by its owner. Now, I think that any writer should be prepared to risk their popularity and their income in favor of speaking the truth. Otherwise, I don't see what the point of being a writer is. But that's easy for me as a relatively young guy without kids to say. It's much harder if you have, a, you know, 10 and a 12-year-old at home and you have to sure. send them to college soon. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of economic things, let me go into the second area of this. Donald Trump is a very strange figure on the economy because he ran and was quite popular in that respect in 2016 in good part by promising to break with a lot of a conservative consensus, saying at one point, for example, that it's of course the task of a state to make sure that everybody has decent health insurance, making it sound very much like he was going to take from the rich and create opportunity and so on for ordinary people. That isn't, in my mind, how he has ruled. It seems to me that he has actually given more presence to the richest people in the country, certainly that he has ended up with a very corrupt government, which rather than banishing lobbyists is a lobbyist's dream. But how do you think about reform in this space? Does the conservative movement need to go back to the principles it had before Donald Trump on this, or does it need to actually rethink what the role of the state, what the role of taxation is in a 21st century economy? I definitely think that you, you can't go back to, you just can't turn the clock back. And I think that we're in what I feel is going to be a great rethinking of all of these things. And it will, you know, whatever happens, however, uh, Trump presidency ends in my, I suspect that it will end badly. There's going to have to be this reevaluation but you're pointing out something that I think is important, that many of the anxieties that he spoke to are real and legitimate. And some of the elements of Republican dogma that he attacked probably deserve to be attacked. But Donald Trump turns out to be the worst possible vehicle for addressing those problems. So he runs as a populist 
but he governs as a plutocrat. You know, he says that he's going to drain the swamp when, in fact, he's presiding over one of the most corrupt administrations that I can remember. You know, if it was not for the Russian Russian investigation, we would be focusing on the conflicts of interest, uh, on the kleptocracy, Mm. on the grift that this government has become. So, yes, this is one of those great ironies of history that you have blue collar workers, you know, throughout the industrial Midwest who hand him the presidency and then he hands public policy over to some of the worst actors. And many of his policies are having the effect of hurting the people that voted for him because he's really motivated more by many of these, you know, social and cultural themes rather than economics. But, yes, there's going to have to be a rethinking of all of those things. But you would hope that they would be done in good faith rather than as covers either for special interests on the one hand or for some sort of a nationalist nativist ideology on the other. So the nationalist nativist ideology is actually the last thing I wanted to touch on in that respect, which is at the moment it seems to me there's a very stark conflict of ideas between what I would call the white nationalism of parts of the administration, the tolerance for figures like Steve King within the Republican caucus who has actually publicly recently expressed a surprise about why the idea of white supremacy is now considered illegitimate. And then you have, on the other hand, a left that is very comfortable with uh, a high degree of immigration, which is increasingly congealing around a discourse of identity, which foregrounds people's uh, religion and skin color and other things as a defining feature of who they are. I imagine that you would want to position the bulwark in some ways in between those poles, but what would that look like? Well, that again, what a good, what an interesting question because it, look, you know, extreme identity politics is going to lead us into some very, very da- dangerous areas. And, um, and how, I, how 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 so? And what do you mean by identity politics? Well, identity politics, like like we've seen in in say the you know former Yugoslavia, where you know the the politics has to do with with your ethnic origin rather than your your shared Americanism. So, but look, I I I do think that the we I have a piece up on the bulwark right now called the purge we need, which specifically talks about people like Steve King and uh, the folks down in Texas who are trying to expel. Um, a Republican county party official simply because he was Muslim. And 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 what I'm arguing is, is that political parties need to decide what they are and what they are not. And for the Republicans, I think there's this urgent need, uh, and it's going to be difficult as long as Trump is, is around, to basically say, you know, if you are engaging in white supremacy or white nationalism, uh, if you are advocating uh, racial or religious discrimination, you should probably find a different party. So, you know, the word purge, is a harsh one, but I do think that membership of a party is not an entitlement and where parties have the right and the obligation to set some standards. And when it comes to the Republican Party right now, they need to make it very clear that Steve King has no place, that the people, the bigots down in Texas have no place. Now, is that going to happen under Donald Trump? Unlikely. But your question was, is there some way to be inclusive to be aspirational without falling into the opposite problem of identity politics. And I'm sure there is. But of course, that requires a certain assumption of goodwill, a certain level of of trust and willingness to talk with one another that, frankly, I don't see happening at the moment. I mean, I do think that we are at this moment where we we are, I mean, I know the word has been overused, but the tribalization of our politics 
has been accelerating. And it's a real danger, I think, to at least what I regarded as the American ideal, which was not, we never always achieved, but it was at least an ideal. Before I let you go, you are firmly based in Wisconsin. You've lived there for many years. There is an interesting set of things happening there, which has me personally quite worried. I mean, one of the absolutely key elements of any democracy is that you accept to be bound by the results of elections. So you may feel very strongly about your side of a case. You may strongly prefer one set of politicians over another. But in order to avoid us degenerating into civil war, you also say, you know what, if I lose this election, I will let you rule for the next four or five years, as the case may be, because then I will have a chance to win after all, to make my case better and to assemble a majority. And what we saw starting in 2016 in North Carolina is legislatures going against that, saying, you know what, we've just lost the election for governor, for example. So in the last weeks in which we still hold the majority, we're going to rewrite the job description. We're going to change what the governor actually gets to do. And that, to me, is not just a piece of hardball politics. It's not just a way of saying, you know what, we're going to jockey hard as hard as we can to improve our standing. It is a basic denial of the principle we need to agree on in order to be able to disagree in our democracy. Now, yeah. in Wisconsin, something along those lines seems to have happened. The outgoing Republican legislature rewrote the job description of the incoming governor, among others. There's a lawsuit going on about that by Protect Democracy, a wonderful organization that I'm involved with as an advisor. How do you see what's going on in Wisconsin? What do you think about this lawsuit? You know, obviously, I know a lot of the people who are involved in all of this, from the governor of the legislature, and I actually wrote a piece for The Atlantic when this was going on, urging Governor Walker to veto all of this, saying, look, this is petty, it's vindictive, and it's self-destructive. And, you know, as the saying goes, it's worse than a crime. It was a, a blunder for them to do this because it, it just it looks so horrible. I think that the actual substance of this, uh, with, with some exceptions, is not as great as some people think. In fact, that was one of my arguments was – you're doing all of this. You are upending these these democratic norms in this in this vindictive way. And at the end of the day, what are you actually getting? Tony Evers is still going to be the governor. Those powers are still going to be intact. This was not necessary. One of the worst things they did was to go back and attempt once again to restrict early voting, which they had done before and which had previously been thrown out by a federal judge. And I think will also be thrown. This will also be thrown out by a, a federal judge. So it was foolish. And it's just an indication how we are edging to a point where there is no more sense of a finality of the election. And look, I, we, you know, we've talked about this in the past. I think these democratic norms are more fragile than we've assumed in the past. I think there's been sort of a sense that we as Americans were different because these 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 ideas were were entrenched. But I think they're being tested and they're being tested in places like North Carolina and in Michigan and Wisconsin. And I think this was a terrible political maneuver. I don't suspect that it's going to be overturned by the Wisconsin courts. But I do think Republicans ought to have been extremely embarrassed by the way they behaved. 
I think there's a lot of us at the moment who feel like we're in an important fight and a struggle against not just Donald Trump, but his attempts to undermine our democratic institutions. And it's easy to have a sort of semi-heroic narrative about oneself. But in my case, opposing Donald Trump very strenuously never risked my friendships. It never risked people who I've been close with for many years saying, I'm not going to invite you out to dinner anymore. I imagine that when you wrote that piece in The Atlantic, you got some blowback from people you knew pretty well. Yes, but of course, I had, I had lost most of those friends some years back. Um, <laughs> and that's, this is this is part of the problem of um, of bucking Trumpism, and and then there's a reason why people want to be part of the tribe, right? You have uh, social relationships, professional relationships, and I'm certainly not going to try to portray myself as a victim here. But you know, in effect, I was excommunicated from the world that I had spent the last two decades in. And so, yes, this is intensely painful, and it's a, and it, and then there is a personal cost, as a professional cost. I wish I had not had as many friendships lost as, in fact, I did. This is part of it, and also it it helps me to understand why people are willing to go along with it, because you know, in our world, it's very difficult to go out on an island, and the never Trumpers are kind of the ultimate political orphans, and I. And I've told Bill Crystal, I, I mean, I knew that we were going to be out in the wilderness. I just didn't think that the island was going to be as tiny as it turned out to be. So it is different. And that's why I really do hope that, you know, if in fact this is, and I agree with you, this is a, a unique historical moment. And I do think that there's going to have to be this coalition of the decent. And there's going to have to be a center right, center left coming together on the things we agree on. Now, maybe the Venn diagram of left and right, the overlap is pretty small, but I think that where there is an overlap, it's very important on things like rule of law and all of those things. And also, you'd asked me something a little bit earlier about that I wanted to comment on this notion that all conservatives are complicit in building Trumpism and Trump is the logical extension of all conservatism. You know, the real danger of that is that it normalizes Donald Trump. If he is the inevitable product of the conservative movement, then there's nothing peculiar about him. That It ignores this uniqueness of the threat that he poses and, and the, the damage that he's doing. I mean, if he's just another Republican, then there's no existential crisis, right? But in fact, I do think that it's important to understand that, yes, he did come out of the conservative movement, but this is also a conservative movement that gave us people like Charles Krauthammer, you know, and, and, and others. You know, it, it didn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to continue in the future. Well, Charlie, I think we are on different islands. We are very happy to be on different islands. But I personally would also be very happy to have a nice big bridge between our islands. And I'm very sorry for the friends you've lost. I'm not sure that my <laughs> friendship can make up for it. But you're welcome for dinner at my house any time of the day. Best of luck to you and the Bulwark. And thank you, Charlie. Thank you so much. That's our show for today. Say hello to us on Twitter and let us know what you think. I'm at Yasha Monk, Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K. And you can find the show at Real Trumpcast. Before you go, I have one more request. Sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year and it gets you the full roster of Slate podcasts, including my own show, The Good Fight. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. I'm Yasha Monk. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. This summer, dive into the many cools of San Antonio. Because as soon as the temperature rises, so do the many cool things to do. Come keep cool with amazing pools and the hottest nights at the coolest spots in Texas. Go to visitsanantonio.com slash summer.